Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And this is God's word for us this day. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, I believe there is beauty and depth and hope in your word for us here. And my prayer is, Lord, that you will teach us well, far beyond my capacity. Don't just give us facts, but give us hope in your word. And we ask that in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Abraham and Job are a pair of Old Testament men who have a couple things in common. Can you guys think of anything that Abraham and Job have in common? they, They started off rich. They surely were tested, though, weren't they? And those tests that they faced were very different from one another. And their tests were very hard. And their tests resulted in good. But besides being tested by God, you know what else they have in common? Neither Abraham nor Job knew in the middle of the test what the Lord was doing. Abraham had no idea he was being tested by God when God told him to take his son, his only son, Isaac, to the mountain. Job didn't know what God was doing. In fact, if you read Job, you realize that that Job's lack of understanding of what the Lord was doing nearly led Job off a cliff. And that made the test, just not knowing, made the test that much more difficult. So what do you think? If you were being tested by God, would you want to know? I'd rather know what was going on, wouldn't you? Would it, wouldn't it help you to know just one reason why you might be going through what you're going through? You ever feel pain and think, I don't have any idea? One reason helps. Hope can come in hardship. Sometimes when the Lord tells you something like, hey, there's a reward for you on the other side of this. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? That God might tell you in the middle of a test, this is a test, and there is a giant reward when you walk through it. Would that give you courage? Okay. Well then, find some hope, because that's in view this morning as we continue our look at the first epistle of Peter. If you are a note taker, be ready for one key thought, just one key thought, and we're going to flesh it out with seven Quick points that follow it. So there's eight things. But we're going to look here at this beautiful, beautiful book. I am loving First Peter. Uh, in a message I'm calling Trials and the Treasure of Faith. So, contextually, we've already seen the greeting. Peter has greeted a group of Gentile believers. They're scattered about in Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And Peter is talking to a group that is facing persecution. They're going to face even harder times in the future. These Christians can look and they can see the storm clouds of suffering on the horizon. And Peter has offered them hope 
by pointing first to their salvation, if you remember from the last couple of weeks. Peter's called them to worship God and to use the worship of God as a way to handle hardships. And Peter has called them to rejoice over the facts of their salvation. And rejoicing over their salvation is the springboard from which Peter will dive into a discussion of our hope in times of trial. And he's going to offer comfort and he's going to offer hope to first century Christians. And if you and I can pay attention this morning, if you and I could hear this, we're going to find that there's help in the difficult lives that you and I have to live too. So here's the key thought. This is sort of everything wrapped into one piece. The key thought Let your trials prove your faith. Let your trials prove your faith. Listen to our text and see if you can hear that concept here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to begin here by having us understand the thrust of the thought that these two verses contain. Then we're going to go back over the verses a little more slowly, Lord willing, to catch some beautiful truths to give us encouragement as we face pain and trials as Christians. So, back in verses 3 through 5, Peter began, if you look at verse 3, with blessed be the God and Father of, the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was teaching the Christians by example there to praise God because of our glorious salvation. And it makes sense that you want to praise God because you're saved, right? Is, is that true for you? That, that, that The idea that God might forgive you and choose you and bless you and all the rest, does that not give you some hope and joy in life? It ought to, right? Having the mercy of God on you is a reason to celebrate. Being born again, having a living hope, a hope that is as secure as God is strong, that's a cause for celebration. And then in verse 6, our passage for today opens with with the, the phrase, in this you rejoice. What's the this? Peter's telling the Christians right here that they rejoice in all the stuff we just talked about regarding their salvation. The word this is taking in the whole thought of verses 3 through 5. A salvation caused and started and kept by God until the day of the return of Jesus. In that, in that truth that you are saved, if you're saved, we rejoice. But can that idea of, hey, celebrate your salvation. Hey, really rejoice in that. Does that ever feel to you almost out of place? I want you to be honest with me now. Some of you have really hurt in life. I'm not talking about the little stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that just feels soul crushing. Have you ever thought that if somebody told you to rejoice during that time that you would want to strangle them? There's no way. It feels awkward. The people that are facing hardships and trials being told to rejoice over salvation, it just feels strange. How can we continue in joy 
when we have pain and sorrow. Deep, real pain and sorrow. Peter feels that tension, I believe. We feel that tension when we talk about joy and trials. Because nobody says, God, I just wish I could have a little bit more suffering piled on. So Peter points out to the Christians, you are to rejoice in your salvation even though, even though you're going through trials at present. He knows that tension you feel. And he shows them that the trials that they face, the pains that they they face, are a necessary and short-term testing of their faith. And then Peter goes on to say to them that this test of their faith is going to give evidence that their faith is genuine. And Peter's going to tell them that genuine faith is a treasure worth more than gold. And when the test is over, the result of the test is going to be great reward. A reward that's worth going through the pain to get. And finally, Peter says the reward is going to be ours at the revelation of Jesus. So the point of these two verses in summary is the key thought. Let your trials prove your faith. That's what this is about. Rejoice in salvation. That's what we learned last week. And as hardships come, even when you're called to rejoice in salvation, as hardships come, know them as tests that will allow you to demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. These tests result in rewards that make it all worthwhile in the end. Now, just stop and think how important this is. Can you, can you already feel the importance of this? The person... Just a simple illustration. The person who starts getting in shape. You ever go through that moment of, it's time for me to get in shape again? The person who starts getting in shape for the first time may not enjoy it. But you know what? When the body starts to firm up, firm up the stamina starts to grow, they feel a little better. And a lot of times, those people say that it was worth it. Or the soldier who goes to boot camp. How do most soldiers feel about going to boot camp once they're there? Not so good, right? They're supposed to hate it. Boot camp breaks a man down and takes away any concept at that moment of individual identity because it rebuilds him from being this individual that nobody can work with and it it takes him out of that and rebuilds him into being a soldier who works with other soldiers as a unit to accomplish far more than any of them could do even as a sum of individuals. Now, I doubt many soldiers look back at the pain and the tears and the hardship of boot camp and say, man, I just wish I could do that again. Although some may. But every true soldier will tell you that it was worth it. Now, Christian, think about your life. Things hurt. True? Things happen that cut you deeply. People hurt you. Your circumstances crush you. Your your body lets you down. Your family members insult you. A pastor fails you. You lose your job, you get cancer, you lose a loved one, your house gets broken into. You can think for yourself about all kinds of pain that we might go through. 
How much difference does it make, though, if you can see your pains and your sorrows and your hurts as tools in the hand of God to shape you? How different is it when you see your trials as tests that give you the chance to show that you really trust in Jesus, that you really have salvation? How much difference does it make when you hear the Lord tell you that if you stand right now under these pressures, if you stand for a little while, he will reward you in a way that is beyond your wildest dreams. The difference here is immense. The issue here could be said to be one of your mindset. When you realize that a hurt is not a wound that's going to kill you, but rather is an opportunity for you to gain reward, you respond differently. You respond with the mindset of someone who wants to win and not with the mindset of somebody who is already defeated. I believe God is giving us a passage like the one we're reading here as a tool to remind us that the way you and I think about our trials will set us up either to be victorious or to be failures. Now, stop, because some of your radar is going off. Do any of you who know me believe that I'm going to teach you now some sort of name it, claim it, prosperity gospel? I'm not a power of positive thinking guy. I'm not a name it, claim it guy. That stuff dishonors the Lord. It's not consistent with scripture. It denies our need for Jesus. It is ugly and abominable. We are not a prosperity gospel church. But what we do need to grasp is there is a simple truth that the way you view your trials will have an impact on how successfully you face your trials. As as one internationally known author and speaker and fitness instructor once put, put it in a book, it wasn't long before I realized the key to the majority of my clients' health and fitness goals wasn't the detailed plan I had provided them. It was the mindset they had going into it. Their thought processes had more of a determining factor than any diet or exercise program, no matter the amount of knowledge, information, and programming that was available to my clients. A lack of mental conditioning made it all seem irrelevant. So I began to coach less on the effect of their nutrition and more on the impact of the beliefs that they had that were associated with it. I started to focus less on their metabolic conditioning and more on their mental conditioning. This is where the real success began to happen. happen. The power didn't lie in their exercise programming, but in their thought processes. Mindset was critical. Mindset was everything. That makes sense from health to real life, doesn't it? How we think about a situation is vital to how we work through it. And I think that's why Peter, right here, even as he introduces the concept of suffering, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, works to tell the Christians and to help them to face suffering with a mindset on eternity. Peter says, your hardships are not meaningless. Your hardships are not hopeless. Your hardships are tests 
that give you the opportunity to prove that you really believe and your hardships give you the opportunity to gain tremendous reward. And I believe God wants any believer who reads this text to come away with a similar alteration in their mindset to let your trials, let your pains, let your hurts prove your faith. Now, let's go back and let's look at the truths that God gives us to support this thought. There are seven things we need to think about here that will help us keep going in times of trouble. So let's go point number one. Trials, trials are temporary. By the way, does that not make you happy? Point number one, trials are temporary. How do I get that? Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now what? What does the word say? Though now for a little while. Peter, he's talking to us. He he said, rejoice in your salvation. He says, there's a contrast. I know there's suffering. We rejoice even though suffering comes. But notice, even when he says that suffering comes, what's he tell us? He says, guys, you got to get this. Your suffering is for a little while. Our suffering is temporary. Our suffering, if we know Jesus, does not last forever. Paul writes something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. This is really high on my favorite passages of Scripture, so you'll hear it from me a lot. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When Paul spoke about the sufferings that he and the early church faced, he compared the sufferings of this life to eternity. And Paul saw that there's a big difference between a finite period of sorrow and an infinite period of joy. How many of you love the old hymn, Amazing Grace? When we've been there, how long? 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now build in your mind the comparison. How long are y'all planning on living? Give me a number. That was not a number. Thank you. I heard 80. 85? Ooh, okay. Anybody want to go for 100 years of earthly life? Yeah. 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 Okay. Owen's in on 100. So, so, God bless your rotten heart. You just don't know yet. So, here's the deal. Let's pretend that we're all going to live 100 years. Sorry for some of you who are already shaking your heads. And let's just say, even if somehow your entire hundred years were years of sorrow and misery and tragedy. So that's possible. By the way, none of our lives are complete tragedy, right? How would your hundred years compare to a thousand years of joy? 
How would your years compare to 10,000 years of joy? How would your 100 years go bigger? How about comparing your 100 years? How big would that look in comparison to a million years? How big is 100 compared to a million? How about a billion years? Before you know it, the years of our life, the years of our sorrow that feel so endless to us, that look so significant to us, they become a blip on the radar in comparison to even a few thousand years. And so in the light of eternity, your life and my life, they're shorter than the blink of an eye. If you want to face trials well, begin with a mindset on eternity. Realize that forever is bigger than your pain. Remember that your trial, even the pain that you feel like will rip your heart out of your chest, that that pain is but for a little while. Trials are temporary. Point two, our trials are necessary. Temporary, necessary. Where do we get that? Look at 1 Peter 1.6. Though now for a little while, if necessary. That word's a big word. It's a big help in our mindset toward how we hurt and how we face trials. Because so often when we hurt, we assume there's no purpose behind our pain. And I can think about times I've counseled with people and said, guys, I don't know what the why is. I cannot give you a why. I don't have a why. But we cannot assume that there is no purpose behind our pain. I mean, we feel like our pain shouldn't happen to us. If we feel like, sometimes we feel like our pain is meaningless. And if we feel like our hurt is meaningless, that there's no purpose behind it, when we think there's no good reason that it could happen, we are discouraged and we feel defeated. But the word necessary right there in the holy inspired word of God reminds us that God does nothing without a purpose. Nothing. God has a reason for what you face. Now, God's reason may not be to your liking. God's reason may not be to your understanding. But God does not act without reason. And since God is holy and perfect and all-knowing, we can trust that God's reasoning for our trials is a good reasoning. In Acts 14, 19-23, there's a story. The Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel in a city called Lystra. And the people brutally attacked Paul, dragged him out of the city, stoned him and left him for dead. That means they tried to kill him by throwing big rocks at his head. Exactly. Now, Paul didn't die, but he got up. Can you imagine his friends unstacking the rocks, expecting to find a bloody dead Paul, and Paul gets up and brushes himself off. Now, if you were Paul and the people of Lystra tried to kill you by throwing rocks at you, where's the first place you would go? Not Lystra. Guess where Paul went. He dusted himself off and walked right back into the town of Lystra and taught the people of God. 
And he talked to the other peoples in the other cities as well. And he, he kept preaching and teaching. And after that encounter, it was in the same context, in the same bit of teaching in Acts 14. The Bible says that Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's 1423 or 1422, Acts 1422. Paul saw a must. He saw a necessity behind his trials. Paul didn't have to know what the must was. He just knew God had a why for what he faced. And knowing God is in control and knowing that God has a reason for what we face, that is sufficient for what we face. That is vital to help us get through our trials. Even if you can't see the why, you need to know your trials, our trials, my trials are necessary. You don't, do you know how many things in your life you don't have the why for? I have no idea exactly why God let me be born blind. You get that, right? God didn't give me a certificate that says, here's what I'm up to. And I can't explain to you why God didn't choose to heal me. Can you imagine how many hours my mom and my grandmothers and my grandparents spent praying that God would do that? How do you think they felt about it? I mean, it would make life easier on me if I could drive. Mitzi would like that. It'd make life easier on the family. But here's what I can say with absolute confidence. God has a reason why this is necessary. And God's reason is good because God is good. And I have no right to ever act as though God's reason is not enough even if I can't understand it. You know what? God is infinitely wiser than me, infinitely greater than me, and I must trust that God knows more than I know, and I must never be so foolish as to think that I have the right, the ability, or the intellect to question God's rationale. And knowing that God sees my circumstances as necessary can help me press on through life that might be more difficult than the lives of some others. Third point. Trials are various. Trials are various. Again, verse 6 says, you've been grieved by various trials. Our, our sufferings are being grieved by various trials. Right there, Peter acknowledges two things that are really important for us to get. First, Peter shows us that he knows, and thus God knows, that the Christians who, have been, who are suffering have actually been grieved. It says you're grieved by various trials. They've suffered real suffering. They've experienced real grief, real sorrow, real pain. Peter does not, and God does not belittle the hurt that the people have gone through. Aren't you glad to know God's not looking at us going, you didn't really hurt? Isn't that good? You've been grieved and God knows it. Second, Peter points out they've been grieved by various Trials. This is not a one-size-fits-all sorrow. The Greek word for various here is actually the word that literally means multicolored. There are many different hues 
to our trials. Isn't that true? Just look around the room right now. You can look up, wake up, look around. Is it not obvious to you that we are different? Some of y'all are really different. (laughs) How different are you from just the people you see in this room? How different are you from other people that aren't in this room? Well, as all of us are different in our personality and as all of us are different in our appearance, we are also all different in our abilities and we're all different in our capacities. We all have a different tolerance for physical pain. Right? Some of y'all get a hangnail and want to take the next two days off work. (laughs) Others of you, and I could name a couple of you because I think it's true of you, could have your right arm three quarters severed from your shoulder and would tape it up, head to work, and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Some of you get four or five hours of sleep at a night and think, man, this is great. Others of you can't move if you don't get nine. So here's the question. How does that fact help us? Peter helps us by letting us know that grief is genuine even when your trials and my trials are not the same trials. God has made all of humanity different. No two people are identical. No two people have identical capacities. You and I are going to have different strengths. You and I are going to have different weaknesses. You and I are going to have different ways in which we are prepared for what we face. But none of us has the right to assume that just because one person's trials wouldn't hit us hard, that those trials are not real and significant trials. How many of you have ever told somebody about a pain or a sorrow in your life Only to have that person respond to you with their attempt to show you how they've had it worse. I call this old man in the coffee shop syndrome. (laughs) Back where I grew up, you could walk into the restaurant and see these men drinking coffee. And one would say, oh, I had a surgery. I had bypass surgery. And it has to be a man in the room who goes, I had double bypass. (laughs) Well, thanks. That just made my surgery not matter at all. How many of you do that to other people, by the way? Let me say this to you. If you are someone who tries to one-up somebody else's pain with your own story, we don't like you. (laughs) I wish I could say it differently. Am I telling a lie? Do you like those people? When, some, when you hurt and you tell somebody you hurt and they give you the whole, well, let me show you why your hurt shouldn't matter. That doesn't help. You discourage people when you do that. You don't encourage people. But Peter and the word of God tells us we face a variety of necessary trials that truly grieve us. That helps us to face our lives with a new, proper mindset. Because we know that anything we face, whether you think it ought to hurt me or not, that is a tool in the hand of God to accomplish things God says are necessary to happen. 
So maybe it's the loss of a job, or maybe it's the contracting of an illness, or maybe it's the death of a spouse. Any of those and a million other trials besides are all tools that the Lord uses in our lives. And your hurt might be big or small in the eyes of somebody else. But if it's something real, you can know that it's something the Lord uses to do in your life what only the Lord can do. Now do you see how that's both? Good for you because you know that, yes, God sees your trials as real, but it also takes all the whiny baby stuff that we want to do away from us because it's a tool in the hand of God to do something necessary, not to sit around in self-pity. Fourth point. Trials test the genuineness of our faith. Trials test the genuineness of our faith. Verse 7 begins by saying, So that, all this happens, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, so that, when you see a so that, pay attention, because it tells you that Peter is going to give you at least one reason why we face our trials. That's good, right? We want a reason. This is not to say, by the way, that this is the only reason that the Lord has for what we face, but this is one reason that the Lord has that you and I face pain and sorrow. And this one reason in the mind of Peter presented to us by God is a reason that should help you to survive your trials with hope. What is it? Peter says our trials serve to prove the genuineness of our faith. Simply put, it's when you and I face hardships that you and I display whether or not we actually believe the things we say we believe. It is very easy To say that you're committed to follow Jesus when everything's good. But when persecution comes, or illnesses, or family members turn against you, or you're threatened with the loss of your job, it's then when your faith proves to be either real or fake. The proving of our faith is not something By the way, when it says I'm proving your faith, you're not giving new data to God when you're tested and proved. The Lord already knows the status of your faith and whether it's real. Trials prove our faith for us to know our hearts. Because we're good at deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are way more sincere than we really are. And trials and pains and hurt show you where you need to grow. And trials and hurt and pain show you what you value most. I like when Paul Tripp teaches on the issue of idols in the hearts. You guys have heard of having an idol in your heart, right? An idol in your heart can be a good thing, generally, but which we elevate to a place of prominence to the point that it's too high. When there's something you love in your life that takes a place above God, it's an idol. By the way, think about the good things that could be an idol. Your family could be an idol. Your your spouse could be an idol. Your hobby that's a good hobby could become an idol. How do you know if something's an idol? Paul Tripp says that the way to identify an idol in your heart is very simple. 
If you are willing to sin to get something, or if you will sin if you don't get it, the thing is an idol. If you're willing to sin to get it, or if you say, I'm going to sin if I don't get it, it's an idol. I think that's a good rule of thumb. What do you think? Sounds workable anyway. Do you see how pain and hardship can expose for us what's real and what's false about our faith? We see our need here to have God cling to us because we're not good at clinging to him. We see our need for the Lord to cast from us our idols. We see our proneness to failure when God tests our faith. Trials test the genuineness of your faith, and that's actually good. Point number six. Genuine faith is a treasure. Genuine faith is a treasure. Again, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So here we go. Peter says, the beautiful thing is, and I do think this is beautiful. He assumes their faith is genuine. Do you believe you have a genuine faith? I hope so. By the way, love the Lord. Cry out to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's how you have a genuine faith. Granted you by God. Peter says the tested genuineness of your faith, knowing your faith is genuine, it results in something glorious. And in the middle of the thought of saying that it's going to result in something glorious, Peter says about something about genuine faith that we really want to be true of us. Genuine faith is a treasure. Wouldn't you agree that if you know your faith is real, that's a treasure? That's good, isn't it? Peter says genuine faith is more precious than gold. Gold is a precious metal. Gold has always been worth a lot of money. Faith is worth more. By the way, gold and faith have this also in common. They are both tested and proved. Peter's talking here about the idea of how gold is purified, right? You put it through the fire. You know, for gold to be, to be purified, it has to be melted down. It has to, for gold to melt, it has to be heated to nearly 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's what gets rid of the impurities and leaves behind the genuine, perfect, pure treasure. Peter says, our trials like burning flames heat our faith to what feels like the melting point. But when they're done, what's left is pure, genuine, humble, honest faith in Christ. All presumption is stripped from us. We stop thinking we're better than we are. We stop thinking we bring anything to the table to benefit God. And instead, we cling in total desperation to the perfect love and perfect grace of Jesus Christ. That is pure. That is a faith worth more than gold. That is a treasure. That's why we sing when God, sort of with a, with a God back to the believer tone in the hymn, Fear not. I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I strengthen thee, call, uh, I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, thy faith all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Last point, point seven. Genuine faith receives eternal reward. Verse seven ends. So the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the most beautiful part of this entire section. This is the part that gives us hope and courage. When our faith is tested by trials, when it's proved to be precious, when it's proved to be genuine, when we stand in the middle of the pain and we cling to God even when we think we're holding on just by a fingernail. Peter says that tested and genuine faith results in, you see the three things in the verse? Praise, glory, and honor. Now, you know what I think is weird here? I actually believe that the praise, honor, and glory in this verse are rewards for the believer. Now, don't get me wrong. Everything God does is to God's praise and honor and glory. God is ultimate. We are always secondary. But the way that this is written, seems to say that in this instance, those words indicate that praise and honor and glory are the reward that God is going to give to his children who hold to genuine faith. Now, is there any biblical indication of anything like that ever being said about Christians? Because that sounds man-centered. Matthew 25 20 to 23 is the parable of the talents. Remember that? Do you remember what the master says to the servants who have taken the talents and doubled them and they give them back when the master returns? Well done, good and faithful servant. Remember that? What do you call it when someone looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful? That's praise. That's honor. That's the reward. Can you fathom God saying that to you? Can you fathom how overjoying that would be to your soul? And don't forget what Paul told us about trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all. All comparison. So Paul says his affliction was building for him, for all Christians who suffer, an eternal weight of glory. So friends, though it's hard to imagine this, the Lord is telling us that our trials and our tests and our pains of the here and now are to our good. Our hurts in the here and now prove that our faith is genuine. And when you live through hurt and you cling to genuine faith because of the grace of God that allows you to cling to genuine faith because God is keeping you, the Lord says to you, well Done, and the Lord rewards you with the joy of glory that is going to outweigh every last ounce of suffering you've ever felt. Do you see? How good is God? How big is God? How powerful is God? Infinite's the only word I've got. You got a bigger word than that? 
If God is good and God is infinite and God is powerful, then God can give you so much joy in eternity that even your deepest sorrow, even your greatest pain, a real pain, a soul-crushing pain, that will, in the light of God's face in eternity, seem like nothing, like a light, temporary, momentary, tiny thing when you compare it to the joy that God has for his children. Your pain will be a penny compared to a billionaire's fortune. Your pain will be a drop of water compared to an ocean of unfathomable depths of joy. And you might say to me, in fact, this might make you mad. You might say to me, I can't see that. I can't imagine That could be possible. Of course you can't. Not now. Not on this side of the cloud. God tells us that the reward is to be ours when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus returns to this earth and reigns eternally that that joy is going to be seen. So as we suffer real pain in the here and now, we set our minds on Jesus Christ and his glory. And we long for his return. And we look forward to a day when Jesus turns this world right side up. And we look forward to a day when Jesus does away with the curse. And when Jesus forever finishes the effects of the fall of man and we long for his arrival and we long for his appearing and we long for his glory to be seen because when Jesus is ultimately eternally glorified, friends, when Jesus is unveiled and seen by all, then we will find ultimate eternal joy in the glory of the Lord Jesus. It is awful when Christians lose the concept of the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. This is a reason to speak in real person to person with some of you. This is a reason why it was a tragedy when many of you years ago were subjected to the false teaching of a person denying that Jesus would return. That's awful. Our hope that our trials and our sufferings have meaning is bound up, the word of God shows us here, in the reward and the joy and the glory we find at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine faith receives eternal reward. Okay. Trials and pains in life are real, but thanks be to God, our trials are also tests that prove the genuineness of our faith and lead us to eternal reward. So let your trials prove your faith to your good. Set your mind on Christ and his glory and and his return and his promise to reward his followers. Set your heart on the fact that God says, I can reward you so big that your greatest pain looks tiny. Trust that he knows more than you do and press on through trials for the prize. But, again, listen to me. If you are here outside of the grace of God in Christ, if you have not made up your mind whether you want to follow Jesus or not, if you have not surrendered to Jesus, 
Here's what I have to tell you. If you are outside of grace, outside of the faith, your trials on this earth, your pains on this earth, are but a foretaste of the eternal suffering that you face that will be infinitely worse than any pain you could ever suffer in this life. Do you get that? Your greatest pain any human could ever face is a drop in the bucket compared to the suffering of hell that we earn for sinning against God. But listen, you don't have to face that. You don't have to. Turn from sin. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. When you genuinely surrender your life to Jesus Christ in faith, you're going to find that there is something glorious in eternity, in the forgiveness of Christ. And it will far surpass any suffering we face in the here and now. So I urge you, listen to me. Don't you dare let anybody convince you that, well, God's preventing me from coming. God commands you to turn and believe. If you do, you're going to find out God helps you do it. If you don't, it's going to be because you didn't want him. I urge you, come to Jesus and find life and joy and meaning in times of trial. Let's bow together and pray.